Hello and welcome back to the Stephen Perkins podcast. I'm Stephen Perkins. This is my podcast. All of those uh, things that I just said make a lot of sense. Uh, you are listening here on the Outset Network, and this is the show where I interview and really kind of deconstruct the up-and-coming conservative leaders in political activism, media, business. And this week is no exception. I am joined by Spencer Brown, the spokesperson for the Young America's Foundation. Uh, and they're, they're the organization, by the way, uh, that just hosted this past week, Ben Shapiro at UC Berkeley. We chat a little bit about the struggles involved uh, with that on this week's episode and more. Spencer has a really cool job. He has a really cool story about how he got to that job. Uh, and so I, I think you'll enjoy it just as much as I enjoyed chatting with him. Uh, and as always, please make sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss the other interviews that have happened. Last week we had Stephen Rowe. Uh, this is turning out to be uh, a really interesting season, and we're having some other great people on uh, in future episodes, so please subscribe. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode with Spencer Brown of YAF. Spencer, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, excited to have you because uh, YAF is an important organization. We'll get into kind of what they do and what your role is there. Um, but just excited to talk to you. And, and you were one of the initial people that kind of helped with Outset. And so this is all coming full circle and it's, it's, it's good stuff. Um, I want to start off learning more about how your passion for politics came about. So let's take it way back. What was your childhood like? What was what was Child Spencer like? And how did politics become an interest? Oh boy, all the way back to my childhood. Um, well, I was raised in a small town in central Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota known notoriously for being actually very liberal. Uh, but fortunately, I was born and raised uh, in a conservative family and in a pretty conservative sort of pocket in the middle of the state there that was sort of bucking the uh, the trend for the rest of the state. And growing up, you know, like I said, raised by a conservative family. So growing up, I was always taught that America is a great country. And so obviously, you know, anybody that would argue against it, I was immediately kind of thinking that they were wrong. So I had a good foundation there. Uh, and then as far as politics go, I just kind of got involved while I was in high school. I had a couple of friends in my school whose parents were state representatives or were running for state house. And so just by nature of being their friends, I started sort of volunteering, door knocking, walking in parades. Uh, something that I think is an on-ramp for a lot of people into sort of the political sphere. And there's something just very fun about knowing that what you do could have a pretty serious impact. And so even as a high school student, uh, one of the races I was working on for one of my friend's dads ended up being won by uh, about 13 votes. And so when you think 13 votes for a state house seat in Minnesota, which is pretty evenly divided, the Republican and the Democrat majority flips back and forth in the state house pretty regularly. So knowing that, you know, maybe one day of door knocking on my part or somebody else that was on the campaign could have changed the outcome of that seat and the outcome of a vote on a budget or something. It's a good feeling. And so I think that feeling of wanting to be part of something that's bigger than me is sort of what drove me to be more involved. And you mentioned you, you had a conservative upbringing. Your parents would teach you about kind of America, American exceptionalism and things of that nature. Were, were they political? Were they politically engaged? Did they kind of teach you about uh, the civics aspect of that, or even go into what conservatism was? What, what, what did that look like? Yeah, I think to my parents' credit, my mom was an elementary school teacher, so she was very uh, engaged in making sure that I was 
receiving an education, not just when I was inside the four walls of my school, uh, which was definitely a good thing and something I benefited from a lot. Um, but I remember, I think it was the 2000 election. That's probably the first sort of political, like strictly political memory that I have. And that was sitting in front of our old, old tube TV in our living room, just glued to the screen while the returns were coming in and asking all these questions because that was just such a crazy election with Florida and everything else. I just remember being like, well, what do you mean they don't know who won? Like everybody voted. How can you not possibly know? And so my parents definitely supported an interested and curious mind about politics and how that all worked. Um, I remember asking just a million questions and thankfully they didn't just tell me to shut up and go away. They actually answered uh, and helped to teach me how you know important it is to be engaged. And then I think my grandparents on both sides as well did a lot to teach me about sort of how America got to be the way it is. Both of my grandfathers uh, served in the military. One grandfather served in Korea, uh, across enemy lines for a number of years. And so I think just having those experiences and all the stories from them really helped to shape how I believe uh, America is and should be. Yeah, the 2000 elections, I heard stories of like kids had homework assignments to fill in the electoral map. And uh, and it got to a certain point. So parents are like, you need to go to bed. We'll do this. But but who knows what's going to happen? So exactly. that's funny. Um, well, very cool. So transitioning into high school and you're getting more involved with campaigns there. And like you said, doing some of the the block walking or did you do telephone? You answered telephones. And, oh, yeah. Many, yeah. many bank hours. Many. I was talking last week with Stephen Rowe and, and the conversation was a lot of people don't want to start doing the seemingly boring things of block walking or especially here in Texas when it's in the middle of summer and it's 110 <laughs> degrees outside. You don't want to be up block walking, but it's an extremely important foundation that really sets you up for success further down the line. Um what we'll, we'll start here. What, what college did you end up going to? What did you study? Yeah, I attended Regent University, which is a small Christian, pretty conservative institution down in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, and I studied government and strategic communications there. And so that fortunately, the way Regent is set up is essentially to treat you as an adult from the first day you walk on campus as a freshman. And that's something that I think definitely benefited me as far as just kind of becoming an adult. And I think something a lot of colleges definitely don't do today where they kind of coddle freshmen through seniors and not allow them to develop their own points of view and not really force them to think for themselves or be able to operate on their own someday. So I'm very grateful for the education that I received at Regent, received at Regent uh, as well as all the opportunities that they provided me with. They definitely made it clear that what you learn in the classroom is important uh, but unless you apply that somehow, what's the point? You might as well just be sitting at home not doing anything at all. Um, and so definitely appreciate the the push that that gave me to get more involved in college. Um, but I actually, the way I found out about Regent was uh, my senior year of high school, I naively just emailed my home congresswoman's office asking for an internship, not really thinking that internships are typically a college thing. And so uh, fortunately, this was uh, the office of former now Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, who is my home congresswoman. And uh, her office replied and said, do you have any references? And fortunately, like you mentioned, because I had done all that block walking and phone banking and put in many hours walking in parades and everything else, I did have a pretty good set of references who were able to recommend me. And I ended up getting it. And then uh, while I was interning in that office, uh, that spring of my senior year, she was actually giving the commencement address at Regent. And being a true millennial procrastinator at heart, I hadn't really picked a college until 
the very end of my senior year of high school, which I don't recommend if anyone listening is like, oh, I can do that. I don't recommend it. It worked out fine for me, but it could have gone very, very badly. Um, and so that was through Bachman's office is how I heard about Regent. And I'm definitely glad that that all kind of worked out to put me there. What did you do at Regent uh, outside the classroom in terms of involved? Were you involved with YAF? Uh, yeah, I was. I founded the Young Americans for Freedom chapter there at Regent, uh, and we did the 9-11 Never Forget Project and Freedom Week and a lot of other things on campus. Because it is a conservative campus, it's a little bit easier to just plug in with the events that the campus is already doing. Like Regent has a Reagan Symposium every year, so that was just a naturally easy thing for us to sort of partner with the school on. Um, but it was definitely a good experience. And then I also was involved uh, with the CRs, the College Republican National Committee, uh, my freshman year there was the 2012 presidential election cycle. And so I went on as an intern with the CRNC down there in the Tidewater region of Virginia to do grassroots organizing and stuff like that. And so when you got involved in YAF, what, what kind of what did that look like? And, and obviously you now work with them. So there must have been something considerable there that uh, that, that made you want to stay on. Um, so I, I guess really give an overview of what um, Young America's Foundation is and then go into some of those details. Yeah, Young America's Foundation is sort of the premier uh, outreach organization of the conservative movement where we work to bring students in high school and college into the conservative movement and help enable them and embolden them to be great activists for the conservative movement on their campuses and then later in life as well. And so when I was a student, I remember hearing about YAP, I think through a radio ad uh, and thinking, that sounds interesting. I'd like to get involved. And so I founded the chapter there. A few months later, I went to my first YAP conference. Uh, we put conferences on all over the country, including at the Reagan Ranch, uh, which is where I attended my first conference. So as a little bit of background on that, back in 1998, uh, Young America's Foundation stepped forward to buy the Reagan Ranch from Mrs. Reagan uh, to ensure that it could be preserved exactly as it was when she and the president lived there uh, and use it to pass on President Reagan's ideas to the next generation. And so I got involved through activism on my campus, through attending conferences, uh, and just a ton of awesome opportunities that they have at CPAC and other events around the country to sort of come together with a bunch of other young conservatives who are passionate about what they believe in. And it kind of all goes back to that whole thing where uh, being part of something that's bigger than just yourself. That is one trip that I still want to make to the Reagan Ranch, because uh, I hear it's awesome. Um, so. It, it, that's great that, that y'all are involved with that. You're also working on right now uh, a Ben Shapiro visit at Berkeley, um, which has sure. not been easy, I think uh, is safe to say. What's the situation going on there and, and why is there such a challenge happening uh, at Berkeley? Yeah, well, it really is stunning, you know, that the institution that claims to be the home of the free speech movement and which has a chancellor who just proclaimed this year to be a free speech year, that it would be this difficult to have one person who doesn't fit the perfect mold of what a Berkeley liberal would be uh, to speak there. But this has been about a six month long saga now of Young America's Foundation trying to bring a conservative to speak at Berkeley. Uh, we had events uh, that were supposed to take place in the spring in April with uh, David Horowitz and Ann Coulter, but both of those were blocked by the school. And so after they blocked that Ann Coulter lecture, we went ahead and filed a lawsuit in federal court uh, for Berkeley's First and Fourteenth Amendment violations against conservative students. And so then about halfway through the summer, 
the students at Berkeley that we've been working with decided, let's have Ben Shapiro try and come and speak. And so Ben accepted the invitation and they notified Berkeley that they had invited him and Berkeley said, oh, sorry, we have no venues available. And the words they used were extensive efforts, uh, turned up no venue. And so obviously uh, my job as spokesman is to sort of let the media know what's going on on campuses. So I jumped all over that. And thankfully through a lot of public pressure and outcry across the country, uh, Berkeley magically found a venue all of a sudden. And so uh, then we had our venue and we thought this is a positive sign. Maybe this lawsuit has sort of showed them that we're serious about this. Um, and we're not just going to let them trample over our students' rights. But then uh, about halfway between when they finally found the venue and now, they announced that uh, it would be a $15,000 fee to secure the venue for this event. And when we asked, well, what does that give us? They couldn't really provide any certain answer. Um, and it's especially concerning when you realize that the Berkeley campus police have essentially a stand down order in place where they are expected to just stand down and sort of let Antifa or whoever the thugs are overrun any barricade or block that they have. Uh, and then last week, the school announced that they were going to cut the capacity of the venue that they gave us in half, again, citing security concerns that someone would apparently rip up a chair out of its moorings in the concrete floor and throw it down onto the lower level and kill someone or knock somebody off the balcony or something like that. And so now we're at the point where we released the tickets. They sold out in 45 minutes uh, online. We released them at about 1.30 in the morning East Coast time. So for that many people to be uh, awake and ready to go in California at that time was uh, heartening to see. Um, but yeah, next or this Thursday rather is the event on Berkeley's campus. So fingers crossed that that goes well. And and that always seems to be universities are starting to realize they can't outright ban these speakers. And so now they come up with all these other loopholes of security concerns and 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 space uh, restrictions and things like that. I, I I had that happen on my campus for something like a mayoral debate, something as small as that. But it was yeah. put on by college Republicans, and uh, and apparently that would incite some anger. Uh, I don't I don't know if I buy that. But I mean, so that's part of you guys bring a lot of different uh, speakers to different campuses. It just seems that most of the California ones are they, they give you the most trouble there. Um, Outside of, of, of that, um, what, does, uh, what does Young America's Foundation do to prepare leaders on college campuses? I think one of the main points is just training students in what we call the Reagan style of activism or advocacy. Uh, and that is just to be very bold and not accept the terms of the left whenever they try to negotiate with you or say, let's sit down and talk. Or if you look at basically any negotiation that's ever happened, whether it be at the national level, politically, or all the way down to college campuses, if a conservative sits down at sort of a bargaining table with a liberal, the liberals never give up an inch. And it ends up being the conservatives forced to basically give up their whole position on an issue. And it also goes to, you know, calling out the left for what it is and for what it's doing and not being afraid of looking oppositional uh, for the sake of standing up for your beliefs, where you have President Reagan and his dealings with the Soviet Union obviously were successful. But if you compare those to other presidents before him, you see where avoiding calling them out so you don't anger them and sort of trying to not necessarily appease them, but just kind of let them coexist um, just does not work. And so we really try to find and enable students who are able to do that sort of thing where they're going to be on their campus and boldly stand up for freedom's principles and conservative ideas and not back down even when the left throws often literally everything it has 
at them to try to shut down their events or their meetings or just really anything. I struggle with that uh, as I struggle with that from the standpoint of I, I think I think it's great when when people can come together. But what you do see uh, on the left is that often there, there's not that willingness to it's it's not it doesn't become a, a compromise or it doesn't become a merging of the two it becomes this is what we have and and you don't get to have your input there why why do you think specifically on universities and this has been happening since you know buckley wrote about it right yeah. in the 50s um but it seems as if it's it's reached such an extreme point now what is your reading on why that is happening and and uh and why has that not been significantly combated by conservatives on campus? Well, I think part of it is, look, these liberals have had basically all the control that they've needed at these universities. Like you mentioned, since Buckley's time, you know, he uh, founded Young Americans for Freedom at his home in Sharon, Connecticut. Uh, actually, the Sharon Statement, which is our foundational document, was essentially signed and agreed to on September 11th in 1960. Um, and so from that time forward, you know, the conservative uh, activists have really been trying to push back against what is going on on these campuses. But if you look at just the makeup of college campuses, the professors, the administrators, sort of the overarching control structures that exist on these campuses, they're all liberals. And so for the longest time, they have not had to make any compromises or have any discussions. And basically all they've had to do is just give lip service to the fact that yes, conservatives exist at our school and yes, they have some opportunities, but then if anything ever happens, they're able to basically just quell any sort of conservative resurgence, um, which I think is what we're seeing at Berkeley in this case. And we've seen it on campuses across the country for decades. Um, but it's at a point where they really never had to negotiate. So all of a sudden to suggest that, oh, there's a pretty strong force of conservative students they, one, don't really know how to handle it, as we've seen with Berkeley, because they, despite us filing a lawsuit against them, they continue to follow the exact same pattern. And you'd think a federal lawsuit, you know, would uh, kind of be a wake-up call for them, but you just see them continuing this pattern where they think they're either above the law or the law doesn't apply to them in this case. Um, and it is concerning, but I think in some schools, at least in the last two or three years, you know, with YAF activists on campuses, we have seen a number of victories uh, where conservative students have been able to sort of change the policies on their campus uh, and force administrators to realize that the conservatives do have a right to speak and be active for their ideas. For someone who may be listening, they're, uh, they're a freshman on campus, let's say, or, or they're someone who's just getting started with this new semester uh, of, of really wanting to, to advance conservative principles on campus. I love the idea of a Reagan style of advocacy for what you believe in and, and that no compromise approach. What are some what are some actionable things that someone could do when they find themselves in a situation where the administration isn't on their side? A lot of the student body may not be on their side and they just feel like they're trapped and they can't really do anything of impact. They can't have influence on campus. What are some action steps that they could take? Uh, within their community? Yeah, I think what we tell all of our students is call us first. Um, our, we call it Freedom Hotline is 1-800-USA-1776. Um, and we just tell students to call that because we've been doing this for decades and there's really nothing that an administrator can do that somebody in this office hasn't seen before. Uh, and so you have people here who have been doing this for 
two to four decades. And so the left, you know, kind of just recycles the same thing over and over and over again. And so we continue to be able to say, you know, this is how you solve that problem. Um, but we do have a really good team here of uh, communications people, legal uh, counsel, and other people who are able to provide a really quick action plan for a student when they find themselves in a situation like that. So we usually just sort of assess the situation and say, is this something that, you know, quick media attention is going to sort of force the school to back down on? Is this something where we think the school is bluffing? And if we call their bluff, they're not actually going to do anything that they're threatening to do. Uh, is this a situation where we need to get our legal team involved or hire outside counsel in order to, you know, file an injunction, depending on what it is, or um, file some sort of FOIA request to get emails that the school has sent about this? Um, students really do have a ton of options. It, like you said, it can feel a lot like you're just boxed in and you don't have options and you're all alone. Um, but to your point that you might feel like the student body is against you, I think a lot of students would be surprised at how many other like-minded conservatives there are on their campuses. And a lot of times it just takes that one student standing up to be bold and host a lecture or do an activism event, but you'll just see essentially conservatives come out of the woodwork. Um, and we've seen that on a number of campuses where even at Mizzou, uh, when we had Ben Shapiro speak there right after the whole dust up with Melissa Click yelling, I need some muscle over here and everything else. We brought Ben Shapiro to speak there and it was a standing room only crowd. We had two overflow rooms and, you know, watching the videos coming out of Mizzou, you would not have guessed that there would be enough conservatives to even fill one lecture hall. Um, so a lot of times it does just take one conservative to stand up and say, I'm a conservative, I'm going to do something. And then you'll end up kind of as the rallying cry for other conservatives to take action. One thing that we've been talking about um, on this podcast and, and really throughout the network is uh, the importance of having that intellectual foundation of your ideology. Uh, to me, it seems as if sometimes campus activism, uh, there are a lot of effective tactics at getting people interested. But then when someone wants to dive in deeper, you either have the, the leaders on campus who don't have that ideological background, the, the, um, the basis of the beliefs that they have and an understanding of that. And, and that means that you also have the other people who are being influenced by them uh, who are lacking that background. Why do you think uh, it's important to have that, that, that intellectual background of what you believe in, and what are some ways that people can develop that simultaneously as they are developing kind of their activism skills? Yeah, I think that is really critical. I think uh, a lot of people today will see sort of the more newsworthy events that happen on campus and get attracted to being more of an outspoken advocate for their ideas just because they see the potential to, you know, be in the news or something like that. Uh, but obviously, if you're lacking sort of the understanding of your ideas or why you believe in them or why they work better than the left's ideas, you know, eventually you're going to hit a point where you can't really be an effective advocate anymore. And so definitely being informed on the history of the conservative movement is a great place to start. Um, going back to, you know, reading uh, like President Reagan's Time for Choosing speech, going back and reading old uh, articles from National Review, reading a bunch of Buckley. You really can't go wrong with those. I think as far as getting sort of the conservative take on contemporary things, because that's so often what comes up in classes and conservatives want to speak up and give their point of view. Um, you know, obviously National Review is a great place to go. Um, there's a lot of 
different issues. And I think it's really important for students to not be sort of a mile wide and an inch deep. They need to find something that they're passionate about and then be the best conservative advocate for that issue. So whether that be tax policy or being pro-life or national defense or whatever that issue is, you should try to be the best advocate for the conservative argument on that issue that you can be. Um, because having somebody who knows, you know, two talking points or hot takes on every issue is not going to be helpful in a debate in a classroom or on campus or later in life. They're not going to be a great advocate for those ideas either. I remember one of the first uh, political conferences I attended, I, I was listening to a presentation by Guy Benson. Great guy. Um, and he talked about it's easy to be a generalist, and but but you'll never really have true influence if you're trying to seem like an expert on everything, right? Find the topics that interest you and, and dive deeply into those and, and truly kind of learned everything involved with that. Um, so I, I think that's great. And that kind of transitions now into, I want to go back um, to some things about you personally. What is your personal why statement or what's your, your personal mission? Um, and what are those issues that you care deeply about? Yeah, I am incredibly blessed to have a job like this as the spokesman here at Young America's Foundation, where I have the huge responsibility of speaking for an organization that has a history going back to William F. Buckley and Goldwater and Reagan, um, and also representing students on campuses all over the country who face a ton of different issues. And so as far as my why, um, I do this because it's an incredible opportunity to give a voice to people who, like you mentioned, feel alone on their campuses, people who feel like they don't have any advocates, people who feel like basically their entire class, campus, city, whatever is against them. Um, and it just goes back, like I mentioned at the beginning, of being part of something that's so much bigger than I am. You know, I'm only 24 years old and my expertise is obviously limited by that. Um, and so just being able to have this opportunity to be a part of Young America's Foundation and its history as well as its future is an incredible thing to do. Describe your politics a little bit. I, I joke around and tell people I'm a, a Romney libertarian, which doesn't really, that's more questions than it answers. But how would you describe uh, your your ideology? As, as I know labels are limiting, but for the best part, how, how would you describe that? Yeah, that is a great question. Minnesota, I think, raises strange political animals just by the nature of the state and how everything works. Minnesota doesn't actually have an official Democrat party. It's the DFL, Democratic Farmer Laborer Party. So it's just like from the start, you're already kind of stuck between a weird choice between the Republicans and the farmer laborers, basically. Um, but I would say uh, when it comes to my politics, I'm definitely a conservative before I'm a Republican. I typically end up you know, backing Republican solutions because they best embody what my conservative values are. Um, but I think a lot of it just goes back to, it's probably cliche, but just Reagan style of believing that government is the problem. It has a necessary role to play um, in protecting our citizens first and foremost. But then anywhere else that government is involved, it usually creates more problems than it does solutions. Um, and then also just his, his general belief in uh, sort of the nature of man and how man is good, but government does need to be there. And so that's why I wouldn't say I trend to the libertarian side. I would say I'm definitely a conservative. And I won't ask you about taxation being theft or anything. Uh, so, <laughs> so don't worry there. Um, <laughs> let's go into some rapid fire questions, uh, okay. which as I say on every show just means that I have to ask them quickly. Uh, but, but your answers can be as long as you want. Uh, the first one is if you had a big billboard or a an ad during uh, 
a high traffic time on television, what's the one message you would most want to get out to the world? Oh my goodness. That is an opportunity I've never been given. And if it was presented, I would be totally baffled. Powerful, um, isn't it? I would want the message probably just to be honestly the first amendment text on the screen, just because I don't think most people actually know what the first amendment says or how it should be applied. So I know just giving people the text of it is not super helpful, but just honestly, I think if most people read it to understand all that it encompasses, I think that would be a good start towards getting people to stop using the first amendment incorrectly and hopefully start understanding why it is the first amendment and what it provides for us. Very cool. That's fair. Um, what issues do you see coming up in the future? What are going to be the big issues in your view uh, in the next five to 10 to 20 years? Yeah, I think uh, just mostly because my work involves a lot of students, I think a huge issue coming up is going to be student debt um, and just education in general in this country as far as is the four-year degree going to be cheapened due to just the inflation because everybody has a four-year degree now basically is the master's degree going to become essentially the new four-year degree and the four-year degree becomes a high school diploma um are we going to sort of correct this and have trade schools take over a little bit more where people will actually learn how to be you know high skill laborers and not uh, women's studies majors, which I'm not sure what that really you know qualifies you for as far as paying back your $130,000 in student loans. Um, but I think definitely the amount of debt that young people hold is having pretty broad impacts. If you look at homeownership rates and people settling down and getting married, it'll be very interesting to see now that our generation is such a large, it might even be the largest portion of uh, the population now, how that affects just the rest of the economy as we're not buying homes and it could have pretty serious consequences. That's a tr- I haven't had that uh, that as an answer yet, so that's really interesting. Um, what is the one book that has influenced you the most? I would have to say God and Man at Yale. That is a book that I reread. You can read it basically on a long flight. It doesn't take you long to read, um, but I think that's definitely one of those things that should be required reading for you know people who are looking to get more involved because it's just a great... Uh, great, easy read that'll get you, I think, questioning a lot of things and also just give you a deeper appreciation for uh, the history of the movement. We just did, we do an internal book club at Outset. That was the first book that we did. And uh, it just, it sets a great context for uh, for contemporary uh, issues. And, and it's like, wow, he was going through a lot of the same stuff. So it's exactly. a good answer. Um, and what is the book that you give people the most? Or, or a couple of books? What are some books that you'd give or recommend? This is going to come off like a true millennial, but I cannot remember the last time I gave someone a book. Uh, what about a recommendation? I would say a good book, just based on a lot of the issues that are coming up lately, uh, is a book by Robert Spencer, who runs uh, Jihad Watch. Um, and the book is titled The Politically Correct, Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam. And it is a great breakdown. He's an expert on what Islam is and what it isn't. And I think a lot of people have a very flawed view of what it is today or what it stands for and what the Quran actually says. Um, and I, I've definitely seen that come up as an issue on many campuses lately, oddly enough, um, as sort of a pressing issue against conservative students, especially around the anniversary of 9-11, when a lot of them do 9-11 Never Forget Project flag displays. Um, a lot of people sort of come out against them saying it's Islamophobic and things like that. 
And so kind of going back to if you're going to be an effective advocate for conservative ideas, you do need to know what the other side believes, too, if you're going to accurately uh, provide your point and counter what they're saying. Very good. Um, this one's a tougher one. I don't even know if I have a great answer uh, for myself, but what is something you believe that most or at least many people maybe don't share that belief? Kind of an unpopular opinion. And it, it can be political. It can be anything. I could argue that Minnesota is a much nicer state than most people give it credit for. Okay. That's I fair. Most people treat it First of all, I've been amazed at how many people can't place it on a map if you hand them a blank map. I've gotten a lot of people thinking it is Montana or Idaho, oddly enough. Um, but I think the general consensus is that it's kind of like an Alaska barren wasteland where it's dark, uh, you know, 23 hours a day in the winter. But that's it's, it's dark, but it's not that dark. So I think an unpopular opinion is that Minnesota is a great place to live. Awesome. I, I do appreciate your up in Minnesota. There seems to be such an appreciation for cheese. Minnesota, Wisconsin. Yeah. Wisconsin loves its cheese. I think Minnesota, I think we love our potlucks and our uh, bread. Okay. I think is a very, we also, you know, cereal, we have General Mills is headquartered there. So our breakfast cereal is near and dear to our hearts. I can relate to all of that. That's that's, <laughs> that's, that's good stuff. In Texas, it would be like Whataburger and, and, and barbecue and things like that. So I get it. That's great. Um, all right. Well, we are wrapping up the end. Uh, I, I want to give you an opportunity to, for anyone who's listening, what is one request or an ask that you would have of people listening? I would say if you are a student and you have an opportunity and any interest in getting involved in being an advocate for your ideas, definitely do it. I understand that it seems like an uphill battle a lot, but one thing that I don't think is stressed enough is how rewarding uh, it is to be an outspoken advocate for conservative ideas. And yes, you'll get attention, sometimes the bad kind of attention where you have professors singling you out in class or your peers, you know, graffitiing your door or whatever it may be. Um, but the opportunities that it opens up for you going forward in your life, if you have any interest in being sort of a lifelong conservative and not just while you're at school, um, definitely take the opportunity to get involved. And YAF is more than happy to help you do that with our conferences or our Young Americans for Freedom chapters or visiting the Reagan ranch, anything like that, you know, we would love to help as many people as possible develop into conservative leaders. Awesome. And what is a way that people can connect with you and connect with YAF online? Yeah, the best thing to do if you're looking just to get more information is to go to yaf.org. Uh, but we're also on Twitter at YAF and we post a ton of our stuff on there as far as what our chapters are doing around the country, what we have coming up if you're looking to get involved. Um, and we also respond to a lot of the wacky stuff that's going on on campuses on there. And uh, a way to connect with you on social media? Uh, I can be found on Twitter at it's Spencer Brown. Very good. Spencer, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Spencer one more time for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode and the other episodes we've been doing. In fact, thank you for your support of the entire Outset Podcast Network. Uh, you can find more of our podcasts by going to outsetmagazine.com slash podcast. A lot of things to explore there. You can find me on social media at Stephen underscore Perkins on Twitter and Instagram, facebook.com slash Stephen Perkins. And you can find Outset Network on all your favorite social media websites at Outset Network. And until next week's episode, take care. God bless. Mm-hmm.